Namo tassa bhagavato arahato summa sumbudasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato summa sumbudasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato summa sumbudasa. Gurangdamang sangang namasami. Ajahn, greetings. So welcome everyone to another Clear Mountain Wednesday uh, live stream. And for those just joining us, this is uh, a chance for the community to kind of uh, approach a topic together. Feel free to type in questions and things you'd like to discuss into the chat. But it's also a chance about once a month for Ajahn Kovil and I, though we're up uh, in different spots of the West Coast to talk about some subject which we're both interested in. And generally, those conversations take the format or the title of finding blank and blank. So today, we are finding strength in bowing. Um, and this is Ajahn Koila's suggestion, and it's a good one. So Ajahn, if I may jump into a question for you. Please. Um, so Ajahn, uh, this is something I know you've really done quite a lot and taken on as a daily practice. I remember traveling in Thailand with you and I'd wake up and hear this kind of thumping from like 10 feet over on the, uh, on the wooden floor. And it was you doing 28 full length prostrations, I think, uh, which you do every morning at um, absurdly early hours. And what initiated this practice? What have you found it's given you in your holy life uh, would you speak to it a bit? Yeah, just to acknowledge, um, it's a little bit strange talking about bowing uh, just because it's such a, a personal and uh, rather um, almost intimate practice with oneself and whatever it is one is is bowing to. And um, But yeah, it can be useful. You can learn a lot from talking with, with friends who uh, who bow, friends who see value in that. Um, yeah, I myself, uh, during my third year as a monk, I, I've mentioned this before, but learned about these um, ngondro, which are basically Tibetan, quote, preliminary practices where you bow a hundred thousand times. Um, and I was one's first five years as a monk are considered kind of like the new years. You're called a Navaka monk, a new monk. And I, I thought that that would be a good marker to, I was kind of a little bit, um, yeah, not really seeing much progress in my meditation and wanting something to reinvigorate my uh, yeah, faith faculty and just reinvigorate my practice. So I got onto YouTube. At that time, we didn't have very much YouTube access at Abayagiri, but uh, watched a video of Tupton Chodron teaching how to do um, full-length prostrations, and I'll see if I can find that video again and put it in the link uh, to this video. Um, but was very inspired by that. Read some from her about this practice of doing full-length Tibetan-style prostrations. And when I say full-length, um, yeah, I think later on we'll talk about specifically uh, different types of vows. We were experimenting before the live stream with if we could fit Ajahn Kovilo in the full frame doing a bow, and it was it was hard, but maybe doable. So. Right. Probably not the full length prostration. I'd have to scoot way back. But um, uh, 
yeah, and then I talked with Ajahn Achalo, who's done lots of bowing at Bodh Gaya. That's a huge practice. You go to Bodh Gaya and you see Tibetan monks and nuns doing these full-length prostrations all day long, but doing that Ngondro practice. So uh, I started and got permission from Ajahn Pasana rather than doing the you know, eight or nine, 10 hours of group meditation uh, that they were doing that winter retreat. I asked if I could do, try to do that Ngondro. So 90 days, three months, that's 1,111 bows if you a day and that makes 100,000 and basically kept to a schedule and yeah it's a lot of bowing every day but uh that started the practice and then i really felt that it was useful and wanted to continue it so figured out having these metrics for practice like 10,000 100,000 a million whatever are uh, useful for me i think it's a fun way to uh, quantify one's practice if you know whatever that's worth but um so yeah, after that decided, okay, uh, 10,000 divided by 365 is about 28. So if you do 28 of something every day, you'll do 10,000 of that thing every year. So yeah, uh, 28 full length prostrations every day. It takes between five and 10 minutes and it's just a wonderful way to start the day and reorient uh, my life. Um, so yeah, maybe that's just an introduction to my, the 28 bow a day practice, but I know you and probably most forest monks in the Ajahn Chah tradition will also have regular bowing practice. Um, curious what your, yeah, um, what are your daily bows like, your occasions for, for doing that? Well, quickly, Ajahn, and I would be you know, happy to talk to that, but just to center on one thing you said, you said that you found a lot of benefit in that Vasa or those three months of or that winter retreat, I suppose, of full-length prostrations. Um, and there are still are stories floating around Abayagiri. Um, I think it was hard for you to find places to bow, so people would open cleaning closets and find Ajahn Kobilo doing bows. It's still- Oh yeah, I bowed. I bowed. It's, there's not, it's hard to find a room in Abayagiri that I didn't <laughs> bow in, or a closet. Yeah. <laughs> so um, what, what do you mean that you found benefit in it? What stuck for you? Well, it's, uh, you know, there are times in practice when it just, one is able to kind of uh, tap into a kind of practice that, uh, where it seems like you, you can just watch and be aware. Uh, and there are other times of practice where that, you, it just seems one is unable to kind of tap into that and practice can feel kind of dry. And uh, that's the kind of patch that I was going through. And, and bowing is a very active process. It's literally an exercise, Reverend Hung Shur, I asked him about his bowing and he's uh, an American monk from Ohio. Great place, great state. Um, and he bowed all the way from LA to the city of 10,000 Buddhas. So um, several hundred miles over the course of two years doing two steps and then one bow. Um, and he said, yeah, it's basically the best form of exercise you can get. And um, yeah, so it's, it's a real, tangible way to engage with practice sometimes for a lot of people just sitting it can just turn into a, a practice of torpor or a practice of um just nodding off or a practice of fading out or um but for me bowing it it's, it's a real way to practically engage the faith muscles and it really changed through the course of a hundred thousand bows what i'm bowing to um, so i think that's a useful thing which i think we can both speak to is like what 
what actually are we bowing to? And for me, it changed during the course of all those bows and it still changes um, how I'm able to um, kindle this feeling of, uh, of devotion, this feeling of that what I'm doing is, is meaningful and an engagement uh, and a participation in awareness and uh, devotion. Hmm. What do you bow to now? Uh, well, for the three bows, which we do on a regular basis when we wake up or when we go to bed, um, a neat, a very neat dedication that I've begun doing is uh, with the first bow, uh, I dedicate my practice to the realization of Nibbana. So a long-term-ish goal, Nibbana, Satchikarnataya, and Satan Pali, because that works for me. The second bow to the Dhamma is a bow to may I realize and participate and experience uh, the Dhamma, which is timeless and uh, apparent here and now. Sanditika Akalika Adigamaya. Um, hmm. So that's the present moment awareness, bowing to that. And then uh, the third bow to the Sangha is for the benefit of all sentient beings, Sabasatanang Hitaya Sukaya. And those are about those are intentions and determinations which I really want to give my life to. Those three basically encompass encompass a Dhamma life. Uh, for me, and it's very intentional and focused and concentrated during these periods of intentional three bowings, but that's what I want to dedicate my life to throughout the day as well. Hmm. So, and yourself, Ajahn, I'd, yeah, tell me about your practice. Uh, tell me about, yeah, your experience with bowing, and also, what do you bow to? I think it's a, a great question. Um. Well, first, I remember going to Thailand and coming to the monastery the first time, and I was with a friend. And I remember very distinctly, he said, I, I bow to no man. And, you know, in a Western context, it's quite it's like, yeah, you know, I think it, there's movies where people say that um, it, it sort of sounds noble in its own right. And it, it always struck, struck me as this kind of radical inversion. Um, of what we traditionally think of as nobility in in the West. Uh, and it honestly takes a while to get your head around seeing all these people bend to the ground. And, and where's the nobility in that? And, and it's one of those interesting shifts in perception where over years, it becomes one of the most beautiful things I, I've ever seen. I know one teacher who said when bowing disappears from the world, Buddhism will have disappeared from the world. And there's that famous quote where the Buddha, having attained awakening, asks himself, who do I take as my teacher? I need to, I, I think he may say, pay respects to something or, or what, what does he say? Uh, have, have respect for. Have yeah, respect some, for. Someone without, without respect suffers in this world. So Yes. And he takes the Dhamma. So even, even the Buddha who had by his own realization attained something which we believe others had not at that time, found something to bow to basically, or to hold in that sort of esteem. And you just see how there's this, there is a nobility in something which seems so opposite the way we usually think of nobility. And that training undertaken at the monastery where 
Ajahn Kovila will know this, um, but in an Ajahn Chah monastery, we bow uh, three times when we enter any room with any sort of shrine in it. Uh, then we bow three times before we leave, before we get up, before we um, sit down. It's just a constant thing. You're bowing hundreds of times in any given day. And uh, if you leave your hut with forgetting to bow, you're supposed to turn back around, go back to the hut and bow. And I just remember how over time it just becomes this, um, I mean, it can become rote, obviously, but the body learns it uh, and it does affect your heart over time. So I've just been really, you know, some of the most impressive moments I've seen with my teachers have been when I've seen them turn from this kind of uh, teacher in the front of the room to when a senior monk comes to them, suddenly you see them click into this mode of complete surrender and service. And like we have had, you know, monastics visit like Longpur Liam, Abhayagiri and Longpur Pasano, who usually is this abbot at the front of the room, suddenly shifts completely uh, into this mode of bringing over the tray of drinks to Longpur Liam and seeing what juice he would like poured into his glass and just this complete and beautiful um, devotion. And I also remember when Longpur Liam was there, we, some of the monastics were walking too near his seat, uh, standing too tall. And Longpur Pasana basically said, like, if you walk kind of near the seat, just make sure you're either bending around it a bit or making sure to stay stay low um, when you pass. And just this constant mindfulness and um, it, it's not subservience. It's, it's this nobility of devotion to something. Because I think one of the real lessons hidden in this path is the fact that we all bow to something. And some of us just happen to bow to ourselves, you know, and, and to realize that, that we all are orienting towards a North Star. And that's what the bowing means to me is this um, embodied representation and training through action of, of the heart and reorienting. And um, I mean, there's more to say about it, but one final thing is in monastic circles, we are often encouraged to make Anjali when we speak to, especially a senior monastic. and it can seem like this to a kind of secular modern Buddhist uh, holdover from a past time and a bit much, but it's such a powerful training. It's very hard to speak angrily to someone or be uppity when you're holding Anjali. It's, it opens you. And I've just found that ability. Um, one of the Buddha's epithets was knower of the worlds and Ajahn Yanika was reflecting that when he, as a monastic, you you encounter so many people's worlds and the intimate parts of those worlds, what's going on in their lives and more, um, that this knower of the worlds is an interesting title. And I just find that that quality of putting down, putting aside oneself and listening, for some reason, that's part of that same motion of bowing. And there's this strength in that. Um, this nobility that you, but it's at the same time a completely opposite motion as the kind of 
modern idea of putting yourself forward and nobility in a Western sense. Um, so that's a confusing and confused answer, but it's, it's also not confused. I, I feel very, all these motions of the heart um, of, you know, bending are the same motion for me. And bowing is just the most beautiful external action of embodiment of that. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah, bowing is lowering and bowing is listening. That's fascinating. And speaking of the nobility and the, the beauty of bowing, uh, you also spoke about just how bowing can become stale. It can just become a, a rote thing that you do. Okay, they say we got to do it when we come into the hall and everybody else is doing it. And um, how this question of what are you bowing to? Is this something which is, is meaningful for you? Does it uh, does it change in your heart? Has it evolved what you're actually bowing to when you do these? Or um... I think the triple gem is it's helpful that we have these three, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, because there are times where I'll think of uh, Longpur Anan or Longpur Pasano, and there's this upwelling of, of love, Ajahn Jaya Sorrow. And sometimes I'll bring that to mind, that, that feeling of uplift and faith is what I look for in my better moments of bowing and trying to do it beautifully. And I do it in a rote way plenty of the time because I'm not perfect and I'm mindless sometimes. But one route to faith, sada, confidence, trust, which is very important, I think, for me and for many moderns, is the Dhamma and the intellectual power of these teachings. And I'll make a point of once a month um, or, well, daily I review the suttas and Ajahn Kovilo and I, you know, we study Pali in the morning sometimes um, together and almost every day alone, just reading the suttas. There's a great newsletter called the Daily Sutta. And then once a month or so really diving in and going through the suttas again and I just find I emerge every time with this glow of the profundity of these teachings are, I've just never experienced anything like it. So often that, that glow remains. Um, and, and I would say just one more thing is there's these moments where I think the bowing is especially important. And those are outlined in the suttas. And one of them is before one teaches the Dhamma, uh, there's a, Sutta in the Kasa, uh, Mahakasapa Sutta or Kasapa Samyutta, where the Buddha says that a bhikkhu may teach the Dhamma thinking, may they hear the Dhamma, having heard the Dhamma, may they gain trust in me, having gained trust in me, may they show their trust in me. Such a bhikkhu is not fit to teach the Dhamma. Or such a bhikkhu may think the Dhamma is well expounded by the Blessed One, apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, leading in words to be experienced individually by the wise. Having heard the Dhamma, may they practice the Dhamma. Such a bhikkhu teaches Dhamma just for the sake of the Dhamma out of compassion. Such a bhikkhu is fit to teach the Dhamma. And I just love remembering that before I teach or speak about Dhamma at all and pointing back to that. And uh, I love how that there's that really stopping at the very beginning and going through all the qualities of the Dhamma just to remember. So for me, that's an especially important moment of bowing and before taking alms food as well. So, yeah, I, I certainly sympathize with everything you've said. And, um, 
It's interesting. I think that uh, quote that you said from the person in Thailand, the Westerner of mm. I bow to no man, that's, I think it's really common. And so far we've kind of just been you know, eulogizing and praising all the great things about bowing and to some extent, you know, preaching to the choir, you know, a lot of, mm. um, but the whole of YouTube certainly isn't a choir of Theravada uh, devotionalism, but what, um, yeah, how do you describe this practice? Because it's something which is, I mean, somewhat triggering. I mean, I certainly, when I first came to the monastery, didn't want to bow. I mean, the Goenka tradition that I started in, there's no Buddha statue. Um, I think it's possible that I've even sat retreats where someone, you know, in the um, managerial position would say, actually, maybe it's not proper to bow because mm. there's not really anything to bow to. There's no Buddha statue. Mm. Um, but yeah, so coming from that, coming to a, a monastery from a very secular place and just seeing the Buddha in, my, in this secular Buddhist perspective uh, taught the Dhamma and we're not, yeah, this, I bow to no man. Um, how do you relate? How do you explain the process of bowing? And when someone like that comes to the monastery and you get that feeling like you're in the room with someone and you're bowing and they're not bowing. Mm -hmm. And it, there's this, like, it feels like the space in the room has cracked. Mm -hmm. Like there's this dissonance, like they've got a perception that you expect them to bow or that bowing is, you know, subservient or, um, yeah, to, um, to something. Um, so what do you, how do you approach that, that conversation with someone who's skeptical of bowing and isn't familiar with it? Thank you, Ajahn. And I think I'll actually, if I could turn that answer question on, on you, I've talked a lot and I can approach it afterwards if that would be helpful. Um, or, or I could answer first and then pass it to you. <laughs> um, whichever uh, was best, but go for it. If I'm really curious, how, how would you explain the, the bowing? Yeah, I bet we would do it similar. Um, and we wouldn't, it wouldn't, if it was you and I in a room with someone like that, we wouldn't just try to like overpower them because we're, <laughs> we're two in their one. But uh, I mean, it's really just, you know, sympathizing with them. And, it, and it, you can kind of see the dukkha in that resistance. And um, yeah, of course, the first thing I would say is there's no pressure to bow, like no pressure at all. Um, you know, even if someone is wanting to be a monk, they come to a Bayagiri and um, this is not infrequent, you know, case in point myself, you know, I come and just not bowing for the, however many months or, you know, weeks or months or however, and just say to the person, yeah, um, if they wanted to pursue living, continuing to live at the monastery, especially if they're continuing to pursue a monastic form, uh, it does become a bit dissonant. If you're, there's, a beauty and a harmony and an importance and a weight that comes from all of the monastics, monks mm -hmm. and nuns um, doing the same thing. So if someone is really hesitant to um, you know, do the communal gestures of respect or whatever, then that's gonna be become a bit of a thing over time. Um, but if it's someone who's just visiting the monastery, just say, yeah, no pressure at all. You know, and if you ever wanna uh, talk about it, I'd love to talk about it because um, yeah, I can understand. That's the thing. I can understand where they're coming from. Um, and yeah, especially when it is bowing to a person. So that's, um, an especially triggering thing. I mean, I think bowing to a person and bowing to an image 
have different uh, troubles and different um, uh, different things that are evoked in people's hearts. Like bowing to a person, you know, brings up these thoughts of like, okay, am I worshiping this person? Is this like, mm-hmm. you know, golden idol? Is is this my guru? Um, they're just going to get puffed up if I bow to them. They're going to think they're special, and mm-hmm. I'm going to put myself in some subservient slave mode, and they're going to take advantage of me. Um, all those thoughts can come up. And if you're bowing to an image, yeah, it's the golden idol. Um, what's special about the statue? Uh, there's nothing special about the spat- statue. Can't I just like, can't I just bow in my heart is a common uh, perspective. And I said, yeah, that's great. That's, that's the real bowing. And like you said, and I was noting as well, like if bowing is rote, you know, how you need to fix that is with the internal bowing. Um, but it's great if you can harmonize both the, the internal softening and lowering and deferencing um, and, the, and the external one um, in yourself. No, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, I would say it's interesting because the I bow to no man is actually, it's kind of correct. I mean, it's true. One of the important understandings is that when you bow to a teacher, you're not bowing um, you know, it's, they're representing something. And I can really understand if someone, so you're not really in some ways bowing to them so much as the ideal which they embody or represent. And I think there's something to be said for someone who just enters a new environment. And with the triple gem, the Buddha image, um, the Dhamma, and then the, the Sangha, until the unifying thread of the Buddha's teaching and sort of the, the luminosity of heart and path that are embodied in those three gems and represented by them and uh, common among them until that becomes prominent in someone's heart such that they can bow to it. I understand and sympathize with not wanting to bow to these material objects because until those things have gained at least a little bit of light or kindle or, or warmth or, or weight, then all you can bow to is the object. And that is useful if you want to take it on as a training. It can lead to kindling the recollection of those qualities, which those things represent. But I think I really understand people until those qualities become prominent, being hesitant. And also to say that some people come from backgrounds of quite unwholesome devotion. And I think really making room for that and acknowledging people should not, like you said, not feel not feel pressure. But I think an important distinction is that in Buddhist thought, these things are technologies of heart. There's a union substrate of the psyche, which involves and can marshal these deep, deep forces in the heart of love, of profound hunger for awakening, like the deepest parts of us. And I think that union substrate speaks and traffics in the language of ritual and of embodiment. And by using these technologies and bowing, you're marshalling those forces with with a, a skillful means. Upaya is what we call it. So I think I'd really frame it like it's just you know, we, we don't think there's anything special necessarily about a Buddha image. It's it's a block of wood that's carved a certain way, but 
these are trainings. And once again, in modern society, we understand that the heart affects external action, but we've forgotten that in many circles, that external action over time really affects the heart. And if you bow a lot, you change. And if you make Anjali when you speak to someone often, you change how you speak to them. And if you hold the five precepts and stop killing, you change. Like you use every tool in the toolkit and that's a powerful one. So I think bringing that to mind is helpful. That's great. Ajahn. Yeah. Maybe before we go to questions, it's a little bit of a um, corner case question, but have you seen or can you remember any especially beautiful bows? Oh, that's the, uh, that's such a good question. Um, and I will ask you the same in a second. I think when I first went to Bodh Gaya, I, uh, where the Bodhi tree is, I, I didn't expect to be moved. I mean, it's a place, right? It's just a place and you go and there's thousands, hundreds, well, there's thousands of people, but hundreds and hundreds of Tibetans and other monastics, but especially Tibetans doing these full length prostrations on these boards laid and oriented laid around and oriented towards the Bodhi tree for 10, 12 hours a day. It, it just made me want to cry. The first time I saw it, there's, it was so powerful. And then you see women and men, um, you know, you can be doing these circumambulations around the stupa and get a little frustrated at how slow it goes until you realize it's because there's an 80 year old Tibetan grandmother in front of you doing full length prostrations. And she's probably been bowing like that. Some of them make pilgrimages from hundreds of thousands of miles away around Mount Kailas, some of them. And uh, they have these sort of big rubber aprons and these um, wooden blocks on their hands so that they don't wear through their clothes. And that was so beautiful. I, I don't know if I've ever seen anything quite as beautiful as that. Um, what about you, Ajahn? Um, yeah, so I've said it before. I, it is a faith of mine that you know, our hauntship awakening is possible and that it's still alive, that there are still our haunts in the world. And um, yeah, there are um, teachers who I believe that I've met and even lived with for periods of time who are enlightened, who are our haunts. And um, just especially when I first have gone to go live with one person in particular, one senior teacher, and then just going to their hut, underneath their hut, there's an open area where they sit this is in Thailand and um, yeah, kind of attending to them, maybe carrying their bag. I forget the specifics, but then yeah, they come down and sit on their seat. And the first thing they do is bow to the Buddha statue in, in the room. And I did it at the same time. And it's a very common thing, but um, for me, that was extremely powerful. And it's almost like it's supercharged. Again, this is all based on faith, who knows? I mean, he might not be anything um, and it's created in my mind, but. It, but it's um, yeah, a very meaningful moment for me that I still remember, um, you know, a dozen years later, something like that. So yeah, very, very beautiful to see someone like that bow with such, and they've been bowing for decades and decades and decades. So, And I remember long, one story many will know is Longpur Sao, Ajahn Mun's teacher, uh, when his death was, he had been stung by a bunch of hornets uh, on a, trip fleeing the French bombing of Ubon or something and gotten into um, Burma, I think? Laos. Laos, Laos. And- Jampasak. Yeah, got to Jampasak and got out of, you know, he'd been very ill and got out of the boat 
walked into a temple, put on his sangati, his outer robe, and bowed three times. And on the third bow, just didn't didn't rise. And um, yeah, I know Longpur Anon or maybe Longpur Cha said that if you really understood what you were bowing to, you would you would never be able to bow without tears in your eyes. And I just I don't know. There's something true about that. So I don't usually cry when I bow, but it's something to aspire to in some sense. So yeah. Thank you, Ajahn. Yeah, thanks, Ajahn. So we have time for some questions now. Um, if people want to type anything into the chat that they'd like to ask um, or speak about. So we'll start with a comment by Vandana. Bowing can be helpful just being mindful of the body, how the body's moving, each body part contributing to the bowing. And of course, the heart, which is grateful to the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. Little Anjali agreed. Something, just a note on that mindfulness of the body. Um, I hadn't always been doing it, but um, yeah, using some kind of pillow or mat underneath the knees, if you're going to be doing 28 bows a day, um, protecting your knees is a, a useful thing. Good call, Ajahn. I like to think of bowing as lowering the head and surrender to the heart. Ajans, I have learned to love bowing, but what's a good way to keep it from becoming the fetter of rites and rituals? Thanks, Dave asks. Ajahn? Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic question. I mean, basically, that fetter of rites and rituals feeling is the roteness that we were talking about. Um, when I'm just bowing because everybody else is bowing, or that's what I do when I, before I go to bed. Um, I feel like, uh, yeah, for me, those, those dedications, which are really fairly deep aspirations in a life, you know, dedicating to attaining Nibbana, to appreciating the present moment here and now Dhamma and dedicating for all living beings. Um, that can really slow me down and, you know, paying attention to the form actually. Um, so rites and rituals, one form that attachment or taking that on in a certain way can manifest is um, just by just doing the form, you're just doing the shell of it. You're not actually bowing very well. Like the form of it is not very, uh, um, very beautiful. So actually taking the time when you realize that like, oh, if my teacher or my friend, or if I was here with a group, what would they think of that, of that bow? And um, yeah, just, oh, I could, maybe I can do that. You know, I can, I can try that a little bit better. So improving the, um, yeah, the actual you know, movements of, of a bow. Um, at some point, I don't know if we should do it tonight here, Ajahn, or just in a different video, but the actual specifics of how to bow, but, um, yeah, so that's one way of addressing rites and rituals. Uh, what do you think about that? I think the form would be great at the end of this video. Maybe we can end with that. Um, yeah, thank you. I think there's a interesting sutta where the Buddha talks about how to assess whether a teacher is freed of greed, hatred, and delusion. And one way is you discern whether they're restrained through fear or restrained not through fear 
And one of the ways you know that they're restrained through fear is if they disparage others and praise themselves. And all this is to say, I think when you're bowing and really looking very critically at people who aren't, or when there's this kind of comparison at work and you're almost wearing it as opposed to something that you just really do, um, somehow there's an attachment to rites and rituals implicit in that way of holding it. Sila pata paramasa. Paramasa can mean fondling almost, or, you know, really holding. Um, and somehow that comparing mind has something to do with that for me. But I, I love your, your thought on just your care in the form. I think that's absolutely right. Um, in the screw tape letters, that uh, great, book by C.S. Lewis on it's this one demon writing letters to his demon nephew on how to corrupt humans. And he says that one thing you really want to do is get the newly converted to think that they just need to pray internally without any external manifestation and that that's all that matters. And that's one of the ways to kind of sideline them. I, I like that. So I think that form is, is a great thing. Tricky, tricky, it's tricky, tricky, tricky Mara. For me, bowing helps to free me from the bondage of self. Bowing orients my life and practice to the path, cultivating right intention, faith, and resolve. Sadhu. Oh, Ajahn, just one, one thing I, I forgot is one of the most beautiful bows I know of. Is this, I've always wanted to make sure I have this story right, but isn't it true that there's a sutta where Venerable Sariputta is bowing in a direction in the morning and he gets criticized as bowing to the directions and the Buddha says, no, actually, he's bowing to Venerable Asaji in, in that direction because that was his doorway into the Dhamma, his first vision of the Buddhist teaching. Do you recollect that sutta? Yeah, yeah. I'm pr almost pretty certain that that's in the suttas. It's definitely in the commentaries, but I mean, yeah, mm -hmm. pretty sure it's in the suttas. Yeah, great story. I just love that uh, idea of no matter how imperfect our Dharma doorway was, that Venerable Sariputta would always bow in the morning towards that, at least. Yeah. In, in I feel like that's the model for why we have Buddha statues in the Ajahn Chah tradition. Most all huts, if not every hut, has a Buddha statue, small or large in it, for to orient your whole life, your whole practice, your whole room to that. So bowing first thing you wake up before you go to bed. Ajahn Tui in um, northern northeast Thailand, they have a practice of not only having one Buddha statue in the whole monastery, like in the in the main hall. Mm -hmm. And none of the huts have basically anything in them, certainly not electricity. Um, but yeah, no Buddha statue. And every monk orients themselves wherever their yeah. hut is towards that main Buddha statue. And, and that speaks to this whole orientation that forms with the bowing of the vertical axis and just placing Dharma books and holy objects on higher levels. It's, it's another technology, but it's a powerful way to rec recollect the importance of those items, I find. I really like that. Okay, Ajahn, I had a teacher say, if you can't do anything, you can at least bow. With a hip injury, full-length prostrations hurt. Are there accommodations? Ajahn, any thoughts? Um, absolutely. I mean, I would not, yeah, if full-length prostrations hurt and not doing them, um, but... Uh, if you can stand, I mean, there are these Chinese style bows where you're basically Amazing. standing and then you get down on your knees and then staying on your knees, you then bow forward with both hands. 
uh, so it's not full length like the Tibetan style. So that's one way, but that might also hurt your hips. Uh, in which case, yeah, just um, sitting in meditation or even just in your chair and just doing the hands and Anjali in Chinese is called like a half bow. And you can just do that three times. So or even, yeah. Oh yeah, that's, that's another, yeah. Do you want to explain that? No, no, please. I didn't want to continue. Sorry. Oh no. Yeah. That, so what Ajahn Nisibo did, just if anyone's just listening to this is basically bringing the Anjali, the hands up to crown of the head to between the eyes with the thumbs and then down to one's mouth or throat. Um, and that's a Tibetan style. I think Tubtin Chodron in her video speaks about that. Do you have thoughts on that, Ajahn, about people who can't really bow comfortably? No, I think your your recollection was good. Um, just do what you can. Yeah. Hi, Ajahn. Speaking of arahants, oh, and, and to say that the Chinese bow with the opening of the hands is a really nice middle path between the full length. And it's so beautiful when you see people do it. They kind of open their palms. Uh, like lotuses. Yeah, that, that's what I did uh, in, and then raise it up a little bit as kind of an offering. That's what I did when I was in Bodh Gaya because it's really hard to do full-length prostrations in these robes. <laughs> um, <laughs> we were at Sravasti and it was hard to keep up with the nuns during their full length. Hi, Ajahn. Speaking of Arahants, I'm wondering what a once-returner is meant to do with their last life in samsara. Oh, I get that question. Um, <laughs> so it may not be as hard um, for me to answer based on all I know, which is what the suttas or commentaries might say, which is that a non-returner, which is the third level of awakening. So in Buddhist thought, there's four levels of, of awakening, basically, or there's eight, uh, technically, including the sort of path moment, but basically four of a stream enterer who's encountered the deathless once and then kind of been drawn back um and then uh not uh once returner a non-returner and an arahant and the non-returner it said um oh a once a once returner oh hmm i think what they're meant to do is practice uh with their last human rebirth and what they say is that with that encounter of the deathless your heart is kind of irreversibly changed and oriented towards Dhamma. So if there is a rebirth um, back in the human in the human realm, the conditions and intention will manifest so strongly towards awakening that uh, that becomes your entire trajectory. So I'd say that's what one is meant to do, quote unquote, meant to do or what the karma of a once returners uh, encounter with the deathless might lead to. Ajahn and I have, that's all I got. Uh, any ideas on this one? <laughs> um, no, although I have recently been thinking about the Pure Land. That's a big practice in Chinese Buddhism, um, the practice of reciting Amitabha, Namo Amitofo. And how the Pure Land is described is basically, it's a place where everywhere you look, the birds, they sing the Dhamma. When the wind goes through the, the trees, the leaves, basically teach Dhamma to you. Everything is reflecting the Dhamma to you. And um, I can certainly imagine that where the non-returners go is the Sudhavasa, which is literally pure abodes. Um, and a non-returner too, 
I mean, just any of these levels of enlightenment, more and more, everything you see is just going to be reflecting the Dhamma back mm. at you, uh, from you, back you, um, every way. So, mm. yeah, just be a wonderful, wonderful world. And go for it if you, uh, yes, that is a good goal. And Ajahn, um, should we use our last minute for a bowing tutorial and encouragement? Or uh, maybe maybe an encouragement. I wonder if I bet I can find a better video on YouTube of someone doing it. It's a bit cramped quarters here, but but just to really put that encouragement out there, like um, if first thing in the morning and last thing in the evening you can bow and make an aspiration, dedicate the goodness of your life to um, to all beings, to your parents, to anyone that comes to mind who's helped you recollect the goodness. Uh, when you enter a room with a Buddha image, if you can take the time to bow and just see how it affects the heart if you're inclined. And if it's a bit much, that's fine. But it, it is really one of the most beautiful things I, I do with my day. Ajahn, anything to add to that? Um, no, just that it can, it can really shift for you. If you don't like it now, uh, that doesn't always have to be the case for you. It really can be a, a serious source of joy in your day and, and, a, and a pick me up really. Um, and yeah, you definitely don't have to do it in a, a rote way. There are ways of relating to it that it, it becomes meaningful and more meaningful. The more you do it, it's like a, it's like a positive feedback loop. The more you um, inculcate and feed meaning into it, meaning that's meaningful for you, not because somebody says bow to this guy, this statue of this guy who died 2,500 years ago, um, but in whatever way it, um, it works for you. And then remembering that every time you do it uh, can really just uh, compound practice and joy and faith. So, oh, Sadhu, Ajahn, and just one final comment. I love the respectful and humble communication you have together in a way that is like heart bowing in action. I agree. Yes, thank you. And Ajahn Kovilo and I, um, it's one of the qualities I really appreciate most about him is that. Uh, softness and listening. So we will endeavor to continue doing this together. Yes. Anything else on your thought and you listen to? So. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. So we'll uh, move on to Zoom as we usually do today. This has been a really wonderful discussion and I hope people do give it a go. Um, if people want to talk at more length in a more intimate environment, we usually now go to a Zoom, which the link of which is in the chat. If you can't see it there, go to clearmountainmonastery.org, scroll down halfway, and there's a Wednesday evening link there with the Zoom. And we'll see everyone there, I hope. Ajahn, Namaste Khan. Good night, Namaste Khan.